Hi, I'm Sir Bose. Welcome to the Net Hero podcast. Now, if you've been listening, which I hope you have over the last couple of years, you know that I'm a bit of a nerd. I love things like paleontology and geology and the whole thing about how the planet works. So when this story came across our desk, I said to Garima, who helps set up the podcast, let's do this one because it sounds frankly bonkers. Could we be capturing carbon using rocks in the ground? You heard me right. Capturing carbon in our soil. Now, carbon capture, people have understood the concept of it for many years and the government has been trying to explore it for quite a while, but is now really putting a bit more money behind it. Other countries have looked at it and the concept is pretty simple. You basically try and capture some of the carbon that we've released over the last 200 years in some form. Whether you capture it in gas, you put it into liquid, you stick it underneath the ground. But could you capture it into rocks? Well, there's a company called Undo that plans to do exactly that, working with farms. And I thought this sounded completely fantastic. So I invited the boss of it, the founder, Jim Mann, onto the podcast. And Jim, tell me all about this because I am frankly astounded. So your background is geology. So tell a little bit about yourself. Sorry, ecology, isn't it? Rather than geology. Ecology, yes. You're a scientist who's had a look at the plants. Dare I say, are you a tree hugger? Is that your I would say yes, I am. Yeah, I'm definitely <laughs> def- definitely an environmentalist. I did have, I've just moved house, so I'm going through it all again now. But I have solar panels, I have heat pump. Excellent. Things like that. So yes, I'm very embedded in the environment, environmental movement. But you've worked in business, haven't you? I have. Yeah, I've got 20 odd years in business. So after doing a degree in ecology, I drifted off into, into business and I've been involved in quite a lot of, I guess, technology startups over that time. So used to starting and helping to grow businesses. And then five or six years ago, disillusioned by the lack of government action. Um, <laughs> I started to look at how we could use business to start to tackle some of these, the, the most important problems of, of our time. We'll talk about undo in a second. But in terms of where the idea of this is, most people listening to this podcast will kind of understand net zero. And the, the official definition of it is you kind of try and reduce all your emissions and whatever's left hardest to abate you find a way of capturing it to to solve that problem. So you use whether it's offsetting or or capture. The idea of carbon capture has been, as I said in the intro, been around a while. What attracted you to this before we talk about what you're doing exactly with Undo? But what about this idea? Why, Why did you want to explore this of all the things that are in the kind of, you know, environmental space? Yeah, so I think that we have to be removing that CO2. We know now, and if you look at the IPCC reports, we're not going to do this by reduction. We've left it too late. So we're going to have to remove CO2. And particularly this concept attracted me because it's permanent. It's really durable. You know, once this happens, it's 100,000 years of storage. It's relatively cost effective compared to things like direct air capture, where you're sucking CO2 out of the atmosphere and then having to liquefy it and store it somewhere. And it's extremely scalable. And when we talk about that last little bit that we're going to have to, to to remove, the problem is across the whole globe, that's a lot. It is a lot. Yeah, absolutely. We need a billion tonnes by 2030. Mm. And we need about 10, somewhere between 6 and 10 billion tonnes a year. 
by 2050. So that little bit is actually huge. And there are not many pathways when you dig into it that can scale to to actually remove that, that carbon dioxide that we need to be removing. In a nutshell, and you've met me very briefly, so you know my brain is not that big. <laughs> How are you using rocks to capture carbon? Tell us what you do. Okay, so I'm going to go just a little bit scientific. Uh-oh. <laughs> Don't worry, don't worry. I'll keep it light. So what you've got happening is if we have a natural rock weathering cycle, and that's what's balanced our climate for millennia. And what you've got occurring is you've basically got carbon dioxide in the atmosphere Mm -hmm. and water. They combine and form a weak acid. And that will then react with the rocks. And it's basically bare rock. So your mountains and things where this reaction is taking place. What we do is, and and when that that happens, it stores the CO2 by carbon science down in the ocean. What we're doing is taking that same rock that's reacting naturally to remove carbon dioxide. And we're grinding it up into a powder. In actual fact, we find it, we source it from other processes already as a powder. That increases the surface area. And when we spread that out on agricultural land, two things happen. The reaction happens 50,000 times faster than it would in the natural environment, if that was just a, a rock face, because we've increased the surface area. And it acts as a fertilizer. The minerals it releases replaces some of the fertilizers for farmers. So farmers are seeing an uplift in, in yield. So the thing I really like about it is it's a win-win. We can put this down for farmers, we can give them the material for free, and it's going to absorb CO2 and increase their crop yields for them. You're using something called basalt, and people might have heard of this. It's From what I remember, it's kind of a, it's a lava-based rock, an igneous rock. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, it's one of the most abundant materials in the earth's surface but it covers quite a broad spectrum of rocks when we talk about basalt that's not a it's not a mineral it's a it's a collection of minerals in a across a spectrum and it's it's everywhere isn't it around the planet yes there's lots of it around the planet i mean it's wherever you've had historically had volcanic activity there are some gaps but typically if there's a mountain range or if there's it's a hard rock that weathers slowly. So things like lots in this in Scotland. I was going to say, yeah. Uh, Wales. Yeah. Yeah. And if you go into your sort of your volcanic areas of the world, that would be fresh basalt that's being formed now in volcanic activity. So what you're doing is this rock, this basalt rock naturally does this process, right? So you're not having to make a chemical process. This is what the earth has been doing for billions of years. Yeah, that's right. So the, yes, the water takes in, absorbs the CO2, you make a sort of a, fuck, my chemistry is not that brilliant, carbonic acid, is it? I'm not sure what it is. That's right. Yeah. Yep. And then the basalt, basically what it sucks it in, is that what it does? It's an acid-base reaction. So it's a chemical reaction that releases the fertilizer elements, the cations, which are the, the fertilizers, the phosphate, yep. potassium, magnesium, calcium, and a range of micronutrients. And then at the other side, it releases bicarbonate ions. And that's your permanent storage pathway so they will work their way through the rivers yeah. into the oceans where they will stay for a hundred thousand years and they'll also start to help reduce the ocean acidification that is a byproduct of, of climate change this basalt now obviously with every technology there is obviously cost you know environmental cost where are you getting it from does it have to be mined is it stuff that you found? You said that it comes from other processes. Can you expand on that? Yeah, sure. So we're taking it from the aggregate industry. Right. So when a quarry breaks up rocks, so it's, you know they're blasting rock from a rock face, yep. they are crushing it down. They want to produce gravel for making roads and railroads typically or going into concrete. Whenever they break those rocks apart, they get dust powder formed, which is often referred to as quarry fines, the very fine particles. Um, Some of that is used in processes like making concrete or the topping on on roads where you want a smooth surface. 
but there's far more produced than is utilised in those processes. So it's already ground to a fine powder, and that's the material we take. You're not having to mine any of this. You're using this as a byproduct. Exactly. We take the, the materials left over from that, that aggregate processing, and then we transport it. Well, we characterise it. So we do a lot of chemical and uh, mineralogical testing to check what the material is, how fast it's going to weather, how much for sort of the um, potassium and phosphate and things it's going to release and make sure there's no heavy metals in it, um, which you wouldn't really want to put onto agricultural land. And then we transport it to the farms and there you go. What gave you the idea? So I was doing reforestation projects in Scotland and looking at that and reforestation in some parts of the world is a great tool for, for climate change. But when you start extrapolating how that will work at scale. There aren't that many areas of the world where at two degrees, 1.5, two degrees of warming, your trees will be stable. And there are not that many places where you've got stable social political systems. So I started looking at things that would actually scale. Started reading lots and lots of papers. And, and this was something that I came across in a paper from 1998, I think it was. And yeah. just thought it was, if it was as good as it looked, it was brilliant. And then started just digging into every paper that had been written about it since then and felt it had a huge amount of potential. I didn't recognise how difficult some of the science was going to be to be able to turn this into a, a process or how hard it would be to to convince farmers that this was good um, and to scale it up. But if I'd known that, maybe, maybe I wouldn't have done it. But um, <laughs> I'm very glad we did because I think it's probably the most scalable opportunity we have for getting to net zero. I assume other people are doing this as well, unless you're the uh, only person in the world. I would have thought people have probably known that for a while. But in terms of doing this process, because you mentioned direct air capture, and I've, I've done a podcast about that, and people talk about other things. You know, I think all carbon removal is good, right? Obviously, there are elements of what it does, you know, even planting trees, people worry about monoculture and things like that. When you look at it with, it's my baby idea, but if you look at it sort of dispassionately, do you see any disadvantages of what you're trying to do or any issues around it? So we've got to move a lot of material yeah. um, to make this work um, at real scale. But the material exists. So you do have supply chain emissions, you know. Yeah, of course you do. And that transport's putting out carbon. The tractors driving around fields is putting out carbon. That's less than 5% of the carbon dioxide that we remove. So there's always things, trade-offs in processes. I don't see any negatives with this. Um, we are monitoring everything very carefully and, and you sort of think, well, what happens if you do this at huge scale? Yeah, absolutely. Are there any unintended consequences? And and no one can point us to any, but we're very careful with our field monitoring to make sure that, that there isn't anything. And... And I think the things it displaces is inherently positive. The fact that you need to put less lime on a field, that you need to put less fertilizer on a field. Yeah, those are all good things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You're working with about 40 odd farms. Is that right now? You've started to do it. And in terms of how you prove the capture, I have no idea. You'll have to explain this one. But how do you know if I've spread it over, I don't know, 10 hectares, how are you working out how much CO2 that 10 hectares of this basalt is actually absorbing per year or whatever can you quantify it as kind of tons of co2 yes yeah so the starting point is looking at the material and understanding the material and being able to model how fast that model how fast that material will react once it's in the ground um, and it'll react at different rates in different climates. So there's some pretty sophisticated scientific modelling goes alongside this. And then once the material's on the ground, we go back to measure a whole range of things. 
So we're looking at changes in, in pH, changes in the electrical conductivity. Um, we use mass spectrometry to actually look at the, the mineral concentrations within the soil. So you're having to go back, sorry to interrupt, so you're having to go back to the farmer's field and then monitor this stuff. So it's quite intensive, isn't it, to see if this is working? Yes, you've got to do quite a lot of science and quite a lot of tracking with your technology solution to be able to demonstrate that you've actually got and and measured your removal. Because I know you only found it last year. So do you have any data yet at all? Yes. On kind of how much you've removed? Yeah. So as a rule of rule of thumb, the material we're working with, we look for a four to one ratio. So four tons of basalt onto a field will remove one ton of CO2. Okay. It's a multi-year process. Yeah. All the initial indications are good. They're all tracking against the, the models and the actual results are tracking against the models. So we know it's removing carbon dioxide and releasing nutrients. And we're seeing an uplift in yield for farmers as well in their crops. So I was going to come to that. Are they saying actually, you know, this field is actually producing better quality or in this field I've had to use less or no fertilizer? to get across so anecdotally they're telling us it's better and they've never seen never seen the grass looking so good <laughs> and things like that unfortunately that's not quite hey, good enough it's the best grass <laughs> yeah. well they, they get excited about these things you know this is important you know it's really funny i've met a lot of farmers and to convince them of anything is very difficult so you've done well to go and say can i spread this on your land mate because they don't like that do they no, no, you know, risk-averse people, and rightly so, because... True. It's our food, absolutely. Yeah, it's our food, and it's their soil, and they want to look after that. So, yeah, the early ones, we spent a lot of time with our agronomists and their agronomists and working <laughs> through it. Now that we've got a long list of, of farmers waiting for material, and which is great and a really positive place to, to be with it. Yeah, is there some sort of... I assume that, obviously, you're going to... You don't want to be shipping this stuff for miles, right? So you don't want to be getting it from a quarry in Scotland and then drive it all the way down to sort of Devon or something like that. So are you trying to sort of position the farms you work with around the sort of quarries where you get the materials? Is that to try and reduce your transport footprint? Exactly, exactly. So we generally try and work within 20 miles of the source of the rock, but we'll go up to 50 miles. Okay, that's good. So yeah, very local. Yeah. Is there an issue? You said something quite was interesting there, that it changes depending on the weather. Now, obviously, we've got... God knows what weather we have in this country right now. So it's quite nice at present, but we had a very wet kind of spring. So does it work better in kind of drier, warmer countries? Is it something that's much more for temperate country use? Or could you see this being used around the world? So it can be used around the world, but you're going to get a faster weathering rate theoretically at higher temperature. Right. So, and you need moisture. Now, the more moisture, the better. So if you look at tropics, that yes. should be your sweet spot. But there's also, I don't know whether you remember freeze-thaw action in geography lessons, but when, yeah. when water yeah. freezes within rock, it breaks it apart. Yeah. And there's some evidence that freeze-thaw actually will speed this up. So we're not quite clear yet until we get a lot more data. We won't be clear on where the best place in the world are. Um, but as a rule of thumb, anywhere where you're growing crops will be wet enough yes. and will be warm enough. So if you've got cropland, you can use this process. It will be faster and slower in different situations, but it will work. You can't just put it on grass, can you? Yes. Yeah. Stick it on my lawn. Yeah, yeah. So I could just put it on my lawn and I'll leave it. Absolutely. It'll get taken down into the soil through the biology. So worms will take it down and, and other soil organisms will just work it into the soil. What we've seen so far is we've seen a slightly 
quicker initial weathering when there's tilling, so when it's mixed into the surface. Yeah. But we expect that it's only very slightly faster than no-till. In no-till agriculture, it's the first six months have been slightly slower. We're waiting for the next set of data, but we anticipate it actually going faster over the longer term in no-till because you've got more biological activity and more biological life. I know you've had some grant money to help, which is great. What's been the reaction amongst other scientists and people in this sort of field when you start to show your results? I don't know if you are actually having to report this stuff in scientific journals or not, or whether you're just using it sort of commercially to, to report your progress. But I just kind of wanted to know what people in the sort of similar field of looking at carbon capture or, or ecology and, and you know geography think of what, what you're doing we collaborate with quite a few universities around our work so we have our first and we're committed to open science so we we will publish everything that we're doing yeah so our first paper has just been um, accepted for publication um it was um some work we did alongside newcastle university and i'm not allowed to say too much about the results no, fine talked yeah. out but, but, but um, what i'm saying is the science that you're showing what the science is doing Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's a significant in that we did field trails with a certain crop and control plots and saw a very significant uplift in in yield. The issue about it draining off into the obviously the land absorbs it and then eventually goes into underwater rivers and it all goes to the sea. I don't know if I read this right, but then in the sea, is there a change in reaction that you're going to a salt water? Does that make it better, quicker? Or does it really not matter where it is? Because obviously, I assume you're you're doing it on land, you're doing it on farming land, so it's rainwater, which is fresh water. Does something happen if it goes in the sea? No, I mean, what, what you've got is bicarbonate ions that are moving yeah. down to the ocean. So those bicarbonate ions stay stable once they're formed. So they're soluble, so they're dissolved in the stream, fresh stream water. Once that mixes into the salt water of the oceans, they stay dissolved. Right, and, and then they can be used by sort of, you know, animals or whatever to, you know... Probably a few uh, crabs will be going, thank you very much. <laughs> Do my shell. Well, it reduces that acidity that's causing some of the problems in our shellfish yeah. fish populations and things. And the scale we're doing today isn't going to make anything meaningful happen in the oceans. Um, yeah, understood, yeah. But it's it's a very small positive dent in, in that acidification of the oceans. Because, you know, you mentioned at the beginning, you know, people are using direct air capture. There's a lot of that going on. People are trying to spin off these e-fuels with you know hydrogen and direct air capture creating methanol and all that why do you think this has a, a significant role you said it's kind of you think it's a win-win all round i just wanted to know why you, why you think that so much so it's so, so two different bits one is that when everybody in the value chain is benefiting from you doing something there's a really powerful force to drive it forward yeah. And to get it to scale. Yeah. The other thing is, it's all existing infrastructure. It's all things we do already. You know, the quarries are already making this. You don't have to build a plant. Yeah, I get you. Yeah. There's no capex. Yeah. We use existing infrastructure to do the transportation. It's trucks that are already there, and yeah. um, they just do more runs. They're doing short runs to where we need them to go. So an existing tractor on an existing farm yeah. with an existing spreader. So. Everything already exists and you're bringing that market together. You're providing them with the science and the technology and the know-how. That means you can scale it extremely quickly. Whereas if you've got to get a direct air plant built and it's... Yeah, you've got to build it, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. Hundreds of millions of dollars mm. and you need to get all your permitting. You've got to have somewhere nearby where you're going to store the CO2 because it's a two-step process. One is get it out the air. 
The other one is get it into storage, whether that's injecting it into the rock formations or back into old oil wells or whatever it is. And that just takes time. You know, it's a multi-year process to build a direct air plant. We can be up and running in a new a new site within days. Obviously, it's very early days. When would you be able to go to, you know, say, right, I can tell you that you said the rough rule of thumb. You can say, I can prove that. How long do you think you'll have the, the figures? Is it you could, you're going to need to run it for a couple of years, five years? Or how long before you can say, right, here's the definitive if you spread it at this thickness, this much, you absorb this much. So we're very close to that already. And there's quite a lot of work in the scientific literature. The models have been reasonably well tested and it's a case of refinement now. So we can, within a bound of, of error, we can be very confident of that today. Um, and so we're we're scaling up, which is actually giving us the data to improve those that modelling. And we can measure it in the field. So it's a case of measure it in the field, um, check what's happening and relate that back to see if your models are working. And hopefully one day you can rely a bit more on your models and your measuring becomes good to inform, but less important to do at the sort of scale we're doing today. Because it's quite expensive doing lots of lots of soil samples and and, and testing. Yeah, of course. I know that you had a, a sort of previous company sort of um, planting trees, didn't you? Yeah. You've walked away from that. Why have you walked away from that? I haven't walked away from that. I'm, I'm still a, a, a director of that company. Um, I'm still involved, but I'm no longer working on it on a day-by-day basis because I, I don't have the time. This is more scalable and therefore I'm trying to concentrate more on, on, on this. Um, I think this is more important in terms of impact. Because obviously the whole, you know, we had the conference just a a week or two ago, uh, the Big Zero Show, and we had a whole session from maybe Noah Patricia Thornley from Aston Uni talking about biomass and reforestation and all of that. And I suppose that's the thing that we all kind of think of, you know, that actually the more trees we have, that that's the way. We never really think about our agricultural land. It's almost like it's in contest with that because people go, right, actually, You've cleared all and you know that's you're getting rid of a big carbon sink. I find that quite interesting. Land use is really important, and we've got a lot of land we don't make good use of yeah. that could be used for reforestation. But reforestation's a one hit. You know, once you plant a forest on on land again, and it gets to to be fully forested. Yeah, mature. Yeah. yeah, once it's mature, you don't store any more carbon in there. Whereas I suppose what you're saying is every year you can keep adding this stuff to the soil exactly you go back and you can do repeat treatments and you're using the soil as a giant reactor which you can keep adding more material into so the the potential over 100 years to remove co2 through land utilized like this is is much greater than in planting a a forest Um, my little one loves the uh julia donald's book superworm so this is very good for superworms isn't it (laughs) superworms gonna love it yeah yeah It's going to be extra strength. I think it's brilliant, Jim. I really do. I think you've explained it very well to an idiot like me. And I think it just makes sense. I think it's a beautiful idea, a very simple idea and very natural. What are your hopes for the next year or so with this? So we're we're starting to, to scale up around the world. So we're working. Oh, not just in this country. Okay. Not just in the UK. No, we, we've, we've, we're working with a partner in Australia mm-hmm. where we're scaling things up and we've got ambitions to do um, a lot more around the world and to use the, the technology and science that we've developed to, to really try and get this as, a, as the norm in agriculture. If we can get this as the norm in agriculture, 
then the impact's just huge. Uh, it can be a very significant part of the carbon removal that we will need, assuming yes. assuming we decarbonise first. And I shouldn't. I should make that point. We have to reduce our carbon emissions. No, no, ab- absolutely. I think you're right on the the money that you know that we won't just do it by reduction. We've got to do it. One last point you said very, which was I thought very benevolent of you that you're putting it in sort of open science that people can understand. Is that to help encourage people in sort of like poorer parts of the world that they could try and, you know, emulate this and and do something similar? So, yes, it's so that anybody can emulate it. And the reason for that is this is a problems bigger than any company or any individual. Yeah. Um, We need to advance the science in a number of areas with carbon reduction and carbon removal as fast as possible. And I just don't believe that you should sit on data that can help humanity get through something as serious as this so i think we're we're morally obligated to put this into the public domain what are you going to do in 50 years when the, the world is covered in your black stuff <laughs> well it'll, it'll have all dissolved so it's not going to, we're not going to turn the world black but um, i'm going to be very happy if we're if in, it's happening it's going to be a very green and pleasant land yeah yeah definitely and i think you know if we're here in 50 years looking at it and and laughing about that climate change thing that we've solved then i'd be extremely happy with that brilliant we've got a big challenge to overcome no we have but i think this sort of innovative stuff is great i wish you all the best with it jim thanks very much for coming on the net hero podcast thank you for having me on it's been a pleasure you've been listening to the net hero podcast with summit bows from future net zero Visit our platform for all things Net Zero. And if you or your business is doing great things on the path to Net Zero and want to be featured on the podcast, email nethero at futurenetzero.com. Follow us on social media. futurenetzero.com. Better business, better planet.